selective service system collects names on behalf of a place few Americans choose to work, actually. Yet the selective service itself ranked in the top 10 of best places to work among small agencies in the latest list. What's the secret? Joining me in studio is the acting director of the selective service system, Joel Spangenberg. Good to have you in. Hey, good afternoon. And you did choose that area as a retired naval officer. So you have been on the other end of the whole thing, too, which the Selective Service serves. That's correct. I served in the Navy and, uh, you know, as a part of the all-volunteer force, and it's really a, an honor and a pleasure to continue serving the country. Yeah, that's kind of an irony because everyone has to register legally, all males in the United States, when they reach the age of 18. And that is your job at the Selective Service for something that is unlikely to even happen. And so I would think that would mitigate against that being a good place to work. So tell us how you bridge that gap between seeming to do something that doesn't matter, perhaps, yet it's a a compelling place to work. Right. Well, first off, uh, maybe I could tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do as Selective Service. And that will give you a sense of, uh, I think, the excitement we generate amongst the employees. First off, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with so many incredible people at the Selective Service System. I'm very proud of our workforce Their dedication and commitment are on display every day, and I'm happy to be part of such a great team. How many are there, by the way? So right now we have 300 total compensated personnel. Uh, We have about 120 full-time employees, up to 57 part-time appointed state directors, over 100 reserve service members from the military services. So that's part of the picture. But we also have the unique aspect of our agency, which allows us to have volunteers. And we actually have over 9,000 volunteers, uh, principally local board members and district appeal board members nationwide. So we have a pretty decent size for being a small agency. And again, the irony, you know, of all the people that might have been militarily connected with the agency now, none of them were ever drafted. I mean, it's 50 years ago. That's correct. I believe what makes it really interesting for us is that people see the enduring nature of what we do. And, you know, we had started as an independent agency with our roots over 100 years ago. And we've been a part of American history since then during peacetime and during times of conflict. Ultimately, we support the national defense community, and people are quite proud of that mission. So we do see ourselves as serving a critical role in ensuring that the nation's military personnel needs are met in the times of national emergency and staying prepared to support that need. All right. And operationally, what happens throughout the year? Throughout the year, I'd say one of the biggest things that people really do see, it's registration. Like you mentioned before, young men are required to register for selective service system, and that's the most visible aspect of what we do. But, you know, within the agency, we also have to make sure we stay ready. And that's really a a central tenant that runs through everything that's required of us. So that means we have to be good on our planning. We have to do exercises and we have to work with our partners to make sure that we stay ready. In other words, in a God forbid situation for the nation, people might have to be called up. I mean, it's a slim potential, at least for the last number of years, 50 years or so, but it's not impossible. That's correct. It's not impossible. And going back many, many years, there's been bipartisan consensus on keeping this agency as part of a national insurance capability because we never know what tomorrow will bring. And, you know, we absolutely do not want to be caught flat-footed. So that is uh, that drives a lot of the passion in the agency to make sure that we stay ready to protect the country if and when called. And it comes up in Congress from time to time, but never seems to quite be enacted. 
is the idea of women being required to register. Yet, do you maintain the, I guess, unused apparatus should that happen? That actually is a very hot question. In fact, most recently, there was interest in this during the FY23 development of the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act. There was a provision that would include women. Ultimately, it was not included in the final legislation, but we monitor that very closely. So ultimately, it's up to Congress to decide. It's a law, but if the law were to change, select a service system, as I said, we remain ready. We would work to implement uh, whatever changes were needed. So I think we're in a good position there, whatever direction we need to go. We're speaking with Joel Spangenberg. He's acting director of the Selective Service System and also a retired Navy officer. What is the mechanism? What's the apparatus? You must have tentacles into all of the states and territories' databases of people. How does that work? Actually, I think you're very correct in saying we do have a lot of great relationships with the states. So, That's a better word than tentacles. Yeah. uh, We have, for instance, if we take a step back, we just can't do it all alone from uh, the federal government. We have to work with partners at the state level especially. So intergovernmental partnerships are very important. So we work with governor's offices, the National Guard across the country. We've even developed relationships working with the Department of the Interior to build relationships with tribal partners, even through our state directors in some states. So that builds into our readiness, that builds into registration. So like I said, it's a team effort, but it's also we work across the federal government. We work with partners, including the Department of Defense. That's a big one for us, the Office of Personnel Management. Even with AmeriCorps, as we look at potential opportunities to build partnership around concepts of national service. And are there any connections between the work that you're doing and the recruitment efforts? I mean, the military services have had some challenges there for a variety of reasons of getting people just to volunteer. You know everyone that could volunteer. Some of them are not useful to the military, given weight or whatever background conditions might have happened to them. But is there any relationship? Is there anything that you can offer that helps the armed services do their recruiting? Absolutely. And I think it's a good opportunity to pause. I mean, this year is the 50th anniversary of the All-Volunteer Force. And having served in the All-Volunteer Force, I'm extremely proud of that. And I love what that force can do. And I love that Selective Service System has, since uh, 2001, had an agreement in place with the Department of Defense to help support recruitment for the all-volunteer force. Principally, this is seen in us enclosing a brochure and registration acknowledgement letters that go to young men. So that's an example of something that helps Department of Defense, and they really appreciate it. And there are other organizations that are interested in working with us in that way, too, to help boost awareness about national service opportunities, because building that service ethos is really important for the federal government and for the nation. Do you track the rates of registration? Because universal registration is required. Do some areas produce higher voluntary turnout, let's say, than others? Yes. Right now, for 18 to 25-year-olds nationally, uh, based on the latest data, which was from calendar year 2022, we are at an 84% registration rate. That's unfortunately a little bit down from uh, calendar year 20, where we were at 89%. But the team has been working proactively to do things to try to work to get the the rates up. But we also have to be responsive to uh, things like, for instance, there was uh, some federal legislation passed in 2020, the FAFSA Simplification Act, that delinked the registration requirement from federal student aid. So that actually 
passed in 2020 and the implementation went through 2022. So we saw the impact. We're feeling it. We think we're going to feel it more, but we are doing our best to counter that. So for instance, the team is working to work with influencers because we know people like coaches, high school counselors, they matter in helping to get the word out to young men about registration. And you know, this goes back to something you had mentioned earlier about working with partners nationally. One thing that we have in place is we have driver's license legislation in 46 states and territories. That is extremely helpful for us. And what that means is when a young man gets a driver's license or an identification card, for instance, they get registered or they have the opportunity to opt in to getting registered. So that's really helpful. So we're looking to build on that. So that builds on those partnerships as well. So we're looking for ways to continue to do it. And even here in D.C., I can tell you quite proudly, the D.C. mayor last year signed into law legislation that would actually help boost awareness in D.C. of the registration requirement. And D.C. has had the worst registration requirement in the country among states and territories. So it's great to see partners there trying to find ways to help ensure young men know about registration so they don't miss out on very valuable federal benefits that can help them in life, both personally or professionally. And that that's really, I think, a key message. We all want to see people have their futures protected, and we also want to make sure people follow the law so this country can yeah, be ready. Yeah, there's that also, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but in some level, you are also fighting demographics. You mentioned driver's licenses in some of the coastal and urban areas, in affluent areas, maybe in some of the suburban areas. They don't even feel like they want licenses compared to your generation or much older, my generation, where you were sitting behind the wheel at 15 and a half trying to not be noticed. But now, you know, yes. fewer people are driving cars at that age. That's actually a challenge. But I will say one thing that the agency has done well in recent years to do is to find ways to get more into social media, to meet young men where they really are, too. So not only are we trying to connect with influencers, but also we know young people like to be on their smartphones and they have their different uh, apps. So we like to try to connect with them that way. So, you know, even though we might have a challenge with licenses, we're still going to look for ways to help inform young men and their influencers the best we can. All right. And you were, again, as we said at the top, among the top 10 small agencies, best places to work. What do you do to ensure that happens? I think one of the key things I would just kind of take away from this is, you know, Selective Service does well because it really does care for its people. And we've created a respectful and inclusive culture in the agency. So I think that mission was something that's really important, but I think the culture is also something that's really set in and made a very positive difference. So some examples, um, our leaders at every level keep morale high by leading by example. Employees also feel very recognized for their talents. And these are results we saw in the best places to work survey as areas that really stood out. Uh, The team has also done a great job of caring for the well-being of its employees. And this is something we talk about. We even have had an integrated project team that focused on quality of life. And I think that was very meaningful for people. So we're bringing teammates together from across the agency to find ways to improve. And this continues. So we are actually continuing to focus on improving, uh, looking at the FEVs and best places to work results to help motivate us and drive us to be our best. So in recent months, we had an employee team actually look at the FEVs results and help identify recommendations that went into an action plan that we are working to implement in the agency so people know that we are committed to this. And I said that compelling mission makes a difference. And, you know, we've emphasized readiness, registration, 
and management excellence very heavily in recent months. And as we modernize our capabilities, we also always work to make sure people know that everybody, no matter where they sit, what they do, they are connected to the mission, and we need everybody to make sure we're successful. So obviously, we have our eyes on continuing to move forward, but I'm very proud of the team and what they've done. And just a quick question between your naval career and coming to the selective service, what did you do? Oh, I actually uh, spent a, a large amount of my career in public service. So I worked as a professional staff member on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee staff. I worked in the Obama administration at the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I'd been the chief of staff at Selective Service System as well for three years, and I spent a little time in the private sector as a management consultant. And I'm one of these uh, people that's had a career both on the political side and the career side. I worked at Naval Reactors. Uh, National Nuclear Security Administration, and I was also the first ever executive director of operations at the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board. So public service has meant so much to me. I've learned so many lessons about how important policy is, implementation is, but ultimately how important people are and how meaningful, very caring leadership is to the whole process. Joel Spangenberg is acting director of the Selective Service System and a retired Navy officer, among other things. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for letting me join you today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Draft the Federal Drive onto your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know. Brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.